most of you probably know British Petroleum, or BP, as the company that operated the Deepwater Horizon, which blew up in April 2010, killing 11 workers and releasing millions of barrels of oil into the Gulf of Mexico in what would be the biggest oil spill in U.S. history, a monumental environmental disaster. But long before Deepwater Horizon, BP had a putrid record when it comes to safety of workers who labor in their facilities all around the world, but especially in the United States. This is Jonathan Tassini, and this is the Working Life Podcast for December 13th, 2017. Now, we're going to be checking in in a few moments on politics, and we're going to be actually talking to a real-life colonel, a real one, who's campaigning out in California to win a seat currently held by a Republican. His name is Doug Applegate, and we're going to be talking with Doug. But first... I want to go back to the topic that I addressed in the last podcast, and you can see that in our archive, which is the safety and health of workers in this country. It is an epidemic that we don't really see every single day, but every single day, workers die unnecessarily and are sickened unnecessarily in incidents all across the country. And let me underscore that I call these incidents not accidents. And that's a terminology that the people who are trying to defend workers and their safety and health underscore that what we're talking about are incidents that happen at the workplace. Because when you use the word accidents, you make it sound like these things actually couldn't be prevented, that it's just a matter of course of life. That's what the cost is of going to work. But that isn't true. In the overwhelming circumstances. 95%, maybe even 100%, all of these kinds of accidents and certainly the kind of illnesses that people get, the occupational illnesses like asbestosis, black lung disease if you're a minor, all those things can be prevented if companies ever cared about worker safety and health, if they didn't think about workers as disposable parts. And as I mentioned in the introduction, British Petroleum has a horrendous record when it comes to safety and health. So let's take the town of Texas City, Texas, where in under a year, the BP facility saw two fatal accidents. In September 2004, an explosion killed two pipe fitters and injured a third. And then on March 23, 2005, which was less than a year later, another explosion killed 15 contractors and injured more than 100 other people. Now, it's been more than a decade, 13 years, since Catherine Rodriguez's dad, Ray, was killed in that first explosion I mentioned in 2004. He was one of the pipe fitters working the job that day. Now, Catherine has turned that horrible loss into activism on safety and health for workers. She goes all around the country speaking about the need to change the system in the country that basically, as I said before, treats workers like disposable parts. And I had a chance to sit down and have a really intense conversation with Catherine at a recent national conference on safety and health. And as you will hear, 
her emotions are still quite raw. And Catherine, we're speaking just after you presented on a panel about safety and health and what workers face both in terms of death and then there were people who talked about just the injuries. And let's start with this. One of the things that you just said to me and was striking to me that 13 years after your dad was killed in the incident, you still have difficulty sometimes speaking about it. Yes, I'm actually amazed by that, that after 13 years, talking about him and, and reliving, being in the hospital and what happened to him still affects me emotionally. Right, you get, it really, everything flows back to you and you remember, I guess, who he was. And, and tell us before we talk about the actual incident, what kind of person was he? What was your dad like? So my dad was your basic, perfect family man. He was the man who did everything for his family. He worked very, very hard. He sacrificed his own wants and needs just to make sure we always had what we wanted or needed. He had four daughters to deal with and a wife. And so that's very difficult for any male, right? So no boys in the, in the family, it was all- No boys. Oh, that, wow, uh-huh. <laughs> that poor man. Um, no, but he was the selfless family man. He was not the guy that came home and said, hey, you know, wife, I'm gonna go to the bar with the guys for a little bit. He came home and said, hey, you wanna go ride your bike? I'll go, you know, I'll ride with you or, you know, I'll, I'll help you throw a football because since he didn't have boys. Um, so he threw footballs with us. You know, he was the, that family man. His entire life was his family. And how long had he been working on the job at BP? So he was there for 33 years. Wow. Of course, he started with uh, American Oil, then Amoco, and then in the mid-90s, I believe, uh, Amoco got bought out by BP. So he was quite committed to that industry, if you will, and he was committed to that, kind of, that job he did. Oh, absolutely. He was, um, he was there for 33 years. He took every possible training that he could. Um, he wanted to be... Uh, fully trained and fully aware and fully knowledgeable of what he was doing. Um, yeah, he, he completely took advantage of everything that was offered to him. So tell me what happened. Tell us how, how this happened and I guess also how you found out about it. What was the first moment that you heard? So I was um, on maternity leave with my firstborn child. She was born in May and so I was taking a few months uh, off to be with my firstborn child. Um, on September 2nd, 2004, um, my dad went to work to work on a, do some maintenance work on a water line. Uh, him and two of his coworkers were doing the maintenance work, which spanned over a couple of days. They started on the 1st, September 1st, and then flowed into September 2nd. Um, they did the prep work in the morning to open the water line. Um, they uh, went to lunch and they came back and they were officially opening the line. Um, it's a water line and an oil refinery. So water is used to refine oil into gasoline, um, but the water has to be very, very hot water in order to refine it properly. Um, and so this water line was holding 500 degree superheated water and steam in the line. And so, you know, making sure it was locked out and tagged out properly was important. Um, which they did. Everything was, was done according to established policy and procedures at the time. Um, when they went in to open the line, my father and his coworker, Maurice Moore, uh, were right on the line. It was an elevated line, so they were on a scaffold. 
they were right there opening the line. Um, when they finally got to the last bolt and went to open the line, it burst open, um, spraying the 500 degree superheated water and steam on all three of the guys. Um, my father and Maurice were on the top of the scaffold and they had one more worker at the bottom of the scaffold on the ground uh, who was also burned. Um, so my father and Maurice were burned, uh, both 80 and 90% of their bodies. Um, Mr. Kemp, who was on the, on the ground working with them, was burned about 70% of his body. He was a little removed from the, uh, the top of the, the valve. Um, they were all rushed to the hospital. Our local hospital over in Galveston is a, um, one of the best in the country. They have a, it's called a blocker burn unit. And how far is that from where it happened to the hospital? So about maybe 20 minutes. Um, one of them was life-flighted. Maurice was life-flighted. He had the, the majority of the burns on his body. Um, both my father and Robert were taken by ground ambulance only because they didn't realize at the time how severe uh, my father's injuries were. Um, so they were all rushed to the hospital and um, my mother was given a phone call from the plant and she was not home, so they left a message on her answering machine just simply saying, call the plant. She was not home, she was shopping, but we live in a town who um, the refinery dominates the majority of the, the jobs there. And so we ha either know somebody or our kids know somebody or we're all interconnected in, in some form or fashion. Um, so this vague call to my mother um, asking her to call the plant didn't last very long because eventually someone my father worked with knew that his daughter owned a salon in Texas City, called her up and said, hey, this is going on. Your dad's at the hospital. You know, they can't get a hold of your mom. You know, can you get a hold of her? Um, so we all knew before, it, the company didn't tell us what happened. We all knew before, um, before those things happened. And so, um, so we, we got the phone call. Um, my sister was the one that called me because I was at home with my, my daughter. Um, I immediately got my daughter to my mother-in-law, called my husband and said, hey, this is going on. I need you, you know, I need you to come home. So he comes home. We rush to the hospital. We all preliminary know what's going on, right? He's been injured. He's at the hospital. That's all we know. So I remember sitting at a, a light with my husband in the car frantically trying to get to the hospital and I remember just calmly looking at him and going I'm scared and he said um, I am too and we had every right to be because when we got there um, he had already been transferred out of the ER into the burn unit they had not intubated him yet um, so I, my mother got to him first and she got to talk to him before they intubated him um, he has always told us that he did not want to live on a machine. Mm -hmm. And so um, when the time came to intubate him, he actually said, no, don't do it. Um, but he talked, the doctor explained, you know, that it's the swelling is temporary. We'll be able to take it out eventually when the swelling goes down. So he allowed them to intubate him. Um, so he sat in the burn unit ICU with 80% burns to his body, second and third degree burns. Um, Maurice Moore uh, was there with 90% burns. He unfortunately passed away the next day. Um, Robert Kemp was the third. He was 70% burned to his body. Uh, he actually recovered mm -hmm. and got out of the, the hospital and recovered at home and eventually went back to work. 
But my father um, had a long, tough battle. He had um, probably approximately 10 skin graft surgeries uh, during that time period. He, um, he started to get better. His skin started to regrow. Um, but every surgery they did knocked him back. Um, it seemed like five paces. Um, and during one of the surgeries, skin graft surgeries, he actually had a heart attack. Well, it's very traumatic. Number one, every time you're sedated, the body reacts in that way. And I assume they also had to deal with lots of infection and stopping infections from the, from the burns. Absolutely. The, um, the visiting time with him meant gearing up, putting, you know, gowns on, gloves on, literally having, it felt like a hazmat suit, you know, having to put everything on just to go and see him um, to do those things to prevent from the infections. So you physically in. couldn't touch him really because you had to be completely protected from giving him, God forbid, any bacteria. Absolutely. And of course we had to limit visitors. You know, we, he has, you know, brothers and sisters and fathers of, of his own, but, you know, we only let my mom and, um, and his daughters in there at the time because we did not want, um, we wanted to give him the best chance possible to recover. Um, that must have been just difficult to stand there. It was. It was difficult to see. Uh, the very first time was probably the worst. Um, my mom, of course, went first. She talked to him. And then she came out. Once I made sure she was okay, I was the next one in. My husband accompanied me in. You know, I saw him, made my peace, left out of the hospital room, went to my mom. She saw me, made sure she knew I was okay, walked out of the room where my mom could not see me, and I walked through the door of another room and just literally collapsed on the floor. I was 30 years old, and my dad was bandaged from head to toe with his arms suspended in the air. As a kid, as a kid, we view our parents as these, especially your dad, <laughs> is like this invincible Superman, right? He's like this person that, you know, can go through anything and do anything. And so to see your parent like that is just really difficult uh, for a kid. And again, I was 30 years old, but as a daughter, you just, it's not something you get over. So, um, so anyway, so we, um, we spent two and a half months in the hospital. Um, he was literally right down the street from where I worked at the time, still do. Um, and so I was able, my mom was there every single day. She didn't work, and uh, she was a stay-at-home mom, so she was at the hospital every single day, the entire time he was there. She eventually made it back home to shower and change and come back, but she was literally there every single day. And so since I worked right down the street, I would come visit every lunchtime, and my mom and I would have lunch, and I would visit with my dad. Uh, and then since she was spending the night in the hospital, um, us four daughters, um, took turns spending the night with her just in case because we didn't want something to happen overnight and her be alone. And so we kind of took turns spending the night at the hospital um, while she was there. But eventually uh, infection did set in and his organs started to fail. And on November 12th, 2004, we let him go uh, in the presence of his wife and his daughters. Um, and so... Going home from that was probably one of the roughest things I've ever had to do uh, up until that point at, at 30 years old, but uh, it, was, it was tough. It was tough to watch 
it happened, but what I thought would be like a complete crying, you know, just losing it time, it really wasn't. I think he had something to do with that. It, it kind of felt peaceful mm -hmm. whenever we let him go. You could feel the peace in the room. Um, but even the, the burn doctor at the, that was treating him ever since he got there, he was, he was in tears. Mm. Um, so, well, so he had anyway. seen that he had see, been with the patient with your dad for two and a half months, you yeah. said, right? So that was a long period of time and got to know him, I'm sure. And I guess you feel connected to them, even as a doctor, you know, not part of the family. Which is good to, for us to see, to know that the people who were caring for him actually did care about him. Mm -hmm. Even though they didn't get to have conversations with him, they did care about him. So it felt good. And at what t obviously there was a tremendous grieving period of time. And at, at what point did your mindset shift to, damn it, I've got to find out what happened here. And you've become an activist, and we're going to talk about that. But Talk to us a little bit about at what point did you say, and you wanted to turn this into action and something to find out about how, why and how this happened? Well, I, obviously there was a, losing my dad was, again, one of the worst things that I've ever been through. And it took me a really long time just to even get those words out mm -hmm. that I lost my father. Years, literally, took mm -hmm. me before I could actually say those words. Um, but while I was in that period where I couldn't say anything, I didn't want to talk about it to anybody, but that period when I couldn't say anything, I was looking. I was reading. I wasn't paying any attention to any media coverage at the time of his incident because I was focused on him and trying to get him better. And so once we lost him and I had that time to mourn, that was one of the things I did. I just got on the Internet and said, okay, I'm going to Google his name. His company. I need to see everything that was written about this incident. Um, and so I did. I started looking and, and, and pulling media articles up. And um, while I was in the state, six months later, his same refinery, the BP Tech City refinery, had an even larger explosion. And this time they killed 15 contract workers, injured over 170 more wow. um, employees. And so this sparked even more investigations. So OSHA had already investigated my father's incident um, and come out with a report and fines, uh, six serious and one willful violation from OSHA for my father's incident. And then six months later, this happened. So since this was such a large incident with multiple fatalities, you had the CSB come in, uh, OSHA has to come in. And the CSB is? The, the U.S. Chemical Safety Board mm -hmm. uh, came in to investigate. Um, this sparked a independent Baker panel appointed by the president at the time um, to investigate this incident and, and see if there was something that could have prevented it. So all of these investiga internal investigations, all of these investigations were made available. I was reading as they were... Um, issuing their reports, they were holding public meetings in the area. So I was listening and reading the entire time. Um, but one of the, um, one young lady whose parents, both of her parents were killed in the second explosion in March. Um, since she lost both of her parents, she was very angry and she wanted answers as well. Um, and so she took, um, that anger into a lawsuit against the company, obviously. Um, 
and in years later, they ended up settling, but one of the terms of the settlement, uh, which is why she didn't want to settle in the first place, because all of her attorneys kept telling her as soon as they settle, that all of these documents that they've gathered go away. And that was not okay with her. So in order for the company to settle with her, one of her terms was that those documents will be released. Um, and so that sparked even more um, reading for me and more investigating for me, trying to figure out what in the world was going on at this little third, little, I say little, the third largest refinery in the US what in the hell is going on over here that all of this is happening? And, and have I just been completely clueless the whole time? Well, you probably, I guess, like many um, children or anybody related to a worker, a father or a, a parent or even a spouse, you go through the day with a sense of either protection or somewhat of an illusion. You don't think about every single day that work because you shouldn't have to. Right. But you were dealing in some way with, we know now that BP with Deepwater Horizon, so it's like a rogue company almost, right? I mean, that's what I feel like when I hear your story and know some of the context of that company. Yeah, unfortunately, um, I spent a lot of time with a reporter with the Houston Chronicle who chronicled all the way back to the March explosion, all the way through the Deepwater Horizon. Um, and I just kind of emailed him randomly one time reading one of his articles and, and we connected through that whole time. But he actually ended up writing a book specifically about BP. It's called Drowning in Oil. Um, and it's about BP from start to finish. The, the beginning of the company, their culture, their mentality, um, all the way down to the Deepwater Horizon and what happened there. Um, so in his investigation, he, he of course had more sources than I did, but in reading his book, um, yeah, it, it's, it started in the very beginning. It was the mentality, the moment they bought that refinery from Amoco that they're doing things wrong. We're going to cut this. We're going to cut this. We're going to make it even more profitable. Um, and so that mentality just, it, it, that's what happens when you have that mentality. When you have that cost-cutting, I-need-to-make-money mentality, then you lose people's, people lose their lives, and they don't get to go home at the end of the day. And unfortunately, the comments coming out of the, the people from BP made it seem like they, didn't, they did not care. What are the things that occur to you as you think about this that are, if you will, lessons um, that people should know about, about workplace safety and what, what workers go through? Um, he was at that refiner for, for over 33 years, and so he saw many, many things. He saw friends get hurt, um, friends get killed. Uh, and so he prepped my mom and took care of his affairs because he knew that was a possibility that he would not come home at the end of the day. And so he made sure all of his affairs were in order because he knew he was taking a risk every day, but he was taking that risk because he needed to provide for his family. And so one of the things, but he kept that. He kept that from his, his children because he did not want us to worry. Right. Um, but I don't think in this day and age, and even in my father's work time, that it's acceptable for us to go, I know that I may not come home at the end of the day, so I'm going to make sure everything's in order. We should not be able, or we should not have to take that risk. Mm -hmm. We should not count that as an acceptable risk whenever we go to work. You cannot mitigate every single risk, 
but you can put controls in place to make sure that those risks don't happen. Things are going to happen, and risk, you know, we can, we can identify the risk, but we can't mitigate them all. But we can try, and we need to try. Mm. And it's not acceptable for us to go, it's okay, I'm going to go to work, but I know I may not come home at the end of the day. Um, or 20 or 30 years from now, I may get cancer from something that I've been breathing in that could have easily been prevented if the company cared about Absolutely, absolutely. But, you know, going to work every day and making sure that you do everything you can to make sure you're safe only goes so far. You can only make sure that you have all the equipment and you're wearing all your PPE. That only goes so far if the, say, refinery you're working at, the, the unit right down, you know, the way, the sidewalk there blows up and you had nothing to do with it. So your PPE is not going to help you there. So there's only so much as an employee that you can do to make sure that you stay safe. It's the employee and the employer that have to work together to make sure that, um, that everybody goes home at the end of the day. And one of the ways that that can happen is through your unions. Um, one of the things that keeps workers safe and helps them be able to speak up about these issues is having the protection of a union. And unfortunately, especially in our refineries, uh, that union participation and it has been declining. And so um, the, the refinery where my father worked at was eventually bought out by Marathon. But before that, he was a union member. I mean, throughout his career, he was a union member. Uh, from the moment he walked in the door, he was a union member, and he made sure that every single one of us who took a job where there was a union made sure we were union members. Um, but unfortunately, the, the refinery was sold from BP to Marathon, and one uh, in talking to the people who still work there and friends of my father, one of the things that they've tried to do is reduce the union workforce and replace it with mm. even more contractors. BP was doing that, but Marathon has been doing it even more. And unfortunately, when that happens, you lose your skilled labor, first of all, and then you also lose your protection. And your voice. Your voice. And I think this is a fantastic point you're making about unionization, because I think most people think of the importance of a union as I get good wages, I get good benefits, all good things. Absolutely. But an important part is having a voice so that your life is protected in the workplace because of safety and health, which unions have been really quite active in, in every union I can think of. Absolutely. It's an important thing to have that voice at the table in bargaining to make sure that your health and safety um, committees are established, your um, concerns are heard. You don't, it, without a, a union, you don't have that voice. And that intimidation and risk of losing your job comes into play and then we end up not saying anything because we're too scared because we have to bring that paycheck home to provide for our families. And it shouldn't be that way. It, we should not be scared to speak up about something that could possibly take someone else's life or even ours. And part of the reason it seems to me, I'm curious what you think about this, we was talked about a little bit in this panel that you took part in, is that, you know, let's say they get fined a million dollars, which of course never happens. but. This money, how do you put a sum of money on a human life, number one? And they don't go to jail. I mean, I've often felt in this whole question of safety and health, one of the reasons workers still get killed and people get sick is because CEOs and those higher up never pay for it themselves with their liberty because the fine is just a cost of doing business. 
That's exactly right. Uh, and that is one of the things that, as a family member, I've pushed um, OSHA and both um, the House and the Senate to push something through that will change the amount of fines that we're charging these companies. Um, as an accountant, <laughs> I actually put those numbers together. The amount of the fine for my father's incident was $102,500. For those five, um, and there was five serious and one willful, do I remember Six correctly? serious, Six one serious. willful violation, and they paid $102,500 for taking the lives of two men. So you take that and you divide it by, that was in 2004, I pulled their annual report for 2004 and I saw what their net income was and I divided that out from that fine that they paid and the calculation percentage is 0.000000007% of their income went to pay a fine that took the lives of two people. And I'm pretty sure they can deduct that as a business expense. I don't think they can. No? I don't think they can. Not a penalty or a fine. They can't. Okay, I'm I'm wrong about that. (laughs) But that's still... That's shocking. And again, even if they paid, I'm just going to use a number, $10 million, they calculate that in the way you just calculated that. But as long as they don't pay for it with their liberty, they don't go to jail for a long period of time because they really did uh, create a situation that killed people, it's just going to keep happening. It is. It's very difficult for... Um, the Department of Justice to go in and even with an employer that has several willful violations to go in and actually prosecute a case. And a lot of the feedback I've heard on that um, is that it's really difficult to pinpoint where the the breakdown was and who actually made that decision. Um, So unless you have it like you know, the CEO in writing says, I'm saying do not, you know, replace this equipment or whatever, that it's really difficult to prosecute and, and, and determine who exactly is responsible. But somebody is responsible and somebody definitely needs to pay and be responsible and be held accountable for these things that happen. And so you've now become an activist. I mean, and you come and speak about this, this terrible tragedy that happened uh, because of the really willful neglect of this company for human life. Um, it, do you think about this every day, that your what's happened and the death of your father is powering you, empowering you to actually try to save other people's lives? Does that motivate you? What really motivates me is it making sense in my head. Mm. I cannot accept in my head that my father lost his life because they didn't add a piece of equipment that cost probably less than the fine. Um, So in order for my analytical mind to have it make any kind of sense, (laughs) I need to know that his death has some good attached to it, that it actually makes a difference in the world and that someone else doesn't have to do what our family has had to do. Now on to the ongoing coverage of politics. And first, I want to mention that I just wrote up a piece for the Washington, D.C. newspaper called The Hill. It's also a website, thehill.com. And it's called, the title is, DNC must ban every corporate dollar or risk total irrelevancy. 
And I'll post the link of the article at the site for this podcast segment on the Working Life site. But obviously, you can search it yourself at The Hill. Now, you get the point of this article just from the title, I reckon. The DNC has to stop taking corporate money, period. Which is a good segue to my next guest. So if the Democrats are going to take control of the House in 2018, they will likely have to win perhaps up to half a dozen races just in California. And one of those races is in the 49th Congressional District, which is in the southern part of the state, just north of San Diego. And one of the things that particularly is identifiable in that district is the huge Camp Pendleton, a military base within the district. The current representative is the odious Daryl Issa. You probably have come upon him on C-SPAN and watched him rant and rave in his odious way. And in 2016, he actually was almost defeated by Colonel Doug Applegate. The margin was only 1,600 votes between them, and actually the percentage was 50.3% for ISA to 49.7% for Doug Applegate. And so you got to figure in the current state of affairs, Applegate, who's taking another run at ISA, is probably running one of the higher profile races against probably a very, very vulnerable Republican. So Applegate, in fact, served in the Marine Corps, mostly in the role of an attorney, both on the defense side and the prosecution side. And after a combat tour in Iraq, which took him to Ramadi, Baghdad, and Fallujah, he retired from the Marine Corps in 2006. Now, what I found interesting about Applegate, and the reason I wanted to bring him on this podcast, is that on the issues, he's very progressive. He's not the typical deep triple C Democratic Party. Let's go out and find a guy in a uniform who has medals that we can show about and show him in combat and roll him out because he'll be a quote unquote moderate Democrat and therefore will appeal to whatever that means to be the center of the political spectrum, which as we have learned is a lot of bull. He actually supports the hike in the federal minimum wage to $15 an hour. He opposes the Trans-Pacific Partnership, and he says, and I'm quoting now from his website, the moral and business imperative of single-payer universal health care is self-evident worldwide. So I caught up with Doug as he was driving on the campaign trail. So if you were to be elected to Congress, one of the things you would obviously deal with is the defense budget. And given your military background, your experience out there in the field, it strikes me that there's one thing that both parties have done over the course of a long time, which is support military budgets. Sometimes if they don't necessarily make sense, partly for parochial reasons of defense installations, jobs locally, and I know that's a big challenge. And for example, in the recent congressional vote on the $700 billion defense budget, it was overwhelmingly bipartisan. There were only 70 people, 70 members of Congress that voted against a budget that included, and I thought this was somewhat humorous, um, 20 more F-35 joint strike fighters than the Pentagon even requested. So I wonder what your thoughts are about that. I think the biggest problem that always arises with defense spending is Congress does not look at defense budgets from the standpoint of national defense. They always increase them for several different reasons. The primary one is to bring home 
important to their district. Mm-hmm. Employment, money, contracts. The defense industry are pretty sly about this. And they make sure that defense contracts impact each of the 50 states. That's the incentive that always skews to a default decision of more, not less, with respect to defense budgets. It drives the Pentagon up the wall as well, because seldom does a defense budget go through Congress without additional pork being added. And I also think that there's a um, um, <clears throat> there's a guilt complex with Congress that if veterans want to prove their patriotism by ensuring that they give the military more, not less. And I think that's one of the shortcomings of not having as many veterans in Congress. Mm-hmm. So, Doug, do you think, given that we just talked about the budget of the Pentagon, the more important question is, you know, how over a long time Democrats have tried to mimic Republicans on being, you know, hawks on defense, but have really abandoned the conversation about what a true national defense looks like? Oh, I think without question that the Democrats have ceded the field in national defense to the Republicans for no good reason. For no good reason. Uh, I think that the Democrats would be far better served if they actively recruited young Iraq and Afghanistan veterans to run as challengers to, to Republicans because they understand the ground truth of what these wars that have affected their generations more than anybody else um, mean. And why the Democrats have just basically waved the the white flag in national defense is beyond me. And whether they've they've either waved the white flag or they've tried to mimic it and be Republican light, and I think even, frankly, uh, Barack Obama, and they're cozying up with the Saudis and supporting, you know, certain military adventures abroad, it just doesn't seem to me that there's a idea, and you point this out on your website, um, that, that war is not the answer in, in most respects. And you, what you said, as we discussed this, that the diplomacy part is very, very important to that. It's essential to any type of military force. And military force threatened is far more effective in 90% of the time than actual the application of military force. Now, you could argue that certainly if you look at Republicans, it would be fine if they felt that they had to support the military, but why not do it when it comes to veterans' pay and pensions, and not to mention the funding of the VA, not just giving them weapon systems that they don't even need? Well, I think I would default to uh, my favorite quote from Smedley Butler, war is a racket. Mm -hmm. You can make more money by spending it on weapons and weapon systems than you can by doing the right thing and honoring the promises made by the government to veterans. I think history has proven that fact, not just in the United States, but in most countries. And as a, as a veteran yourself, you can have that conversation with ease with perhaps many of your potential constituents. And do you find that to be something that resonates with them, that they understand that war is a racket and that, you know, money should be spent at least on veterans of the VA, but not necessarily on wasteful weapon systems. Do they see that happening? I would 
I would be hesitant to use the term with ease mm-hmm. in any portion of a political endeavor. But <laughs> a wise, ma- a wise it, man. It, it, <laughs> I, I, I would definitely say that veterans see the world through the same eyeglass that I look through. I think that that if you have people that have served in combat, they look at the world much more critically. And I I grew up in a household where my father was a uh, combat veteran in World War II, was wounded twice in the Ardennes in 1944. And the only discussions we ever had about his experience was a rhetorical question that I knew as a young lad, no further discussion was necessary, was anybody who talks about combat hasn't seen it. And I think that um, the American public has been sold and resold a bill of goods that somehow military force and kinetic operations is the answer to solving the world's problems when you really can't kill your way out of most of the problems that this world in the present context faces. We cannot... We are killing more more and more people and creating more and more enemies in the process. Well, certainly the Iraq War is a great example of that. I mean, to, to shorten the story, uh, the Iraq War essentially bred and created ISIS, if you look at the progression of activities and circumstances that happened once the war was initiated and you look down the road. I think most people that served in Iraq foresaw that there would be a, um, uh, just a simple, to put it simply, another iteration of um, Al-Qaeda, which was um, a brand of Sunni Islam (coughs) that arose um, as Wahhabis when the, the Turks controlled Mecca. And you, to your point, we created more enemies and continue to create enemies every day with this kind of notion, as you point out, that we think, and I say we, meaning our political leaders think, that you can fight your way out of these problems using military force. Correct. Even the Pentagon doesn't believe that because... In any of our planning, we always consider the dime concept, concept, diplomacy, intelligence, military, and economic leverages. Military is only one of four principles in conducting any type of operation. Right. And I think that most people in the um, that are professional military officers, and as well as professional staff NCOs recognize, once again, we can't kill our way out of the problem. And we aren't asking the right questions or using the right metrics to evaluate what success would be either. What are the questions you ask? I would always ask of the right people what's the cost in blood, treasure, and duration. Mm -hmm. If there is a potential, as there usually is, of victory followed by insurgency and asymmetrical warfare, guerrilla warfare, to make, to make it uh, even more simple. You can count on a duration of two generations, 
So whenever we're considering military options, the duration would be the lives of your children and grandchildren. History is more in that out. Now, you could argue, and I'm curious what your view is about this, that this all circles back, if we're looking at war in the Middle East, certainly circles back to the Israel-Palestine issue. What's your view about that? Um, well, it absolutely applies to the war in the Middle East, which would encompass the um, Palestinian issue, which the only viable hope is a two-state solution, which is constantly undercut by one side or the other, or people that should be leading the peace process are third-party states like the United States, um, and certainly the rest of the, the Middle East, which is largely driven by natural resources, primarily carbon fuel. Mm -hmm. So I would always lead with a world that was 100% renewable energy-based would be a more peaceful world. And that's something we need to strive for. And I think the first thing that every legislature should swear an allegiance to is to stop subsidies for oil production. The people that I've been talking to that are international sustainability consultants with you know, conservative firms like Deloitte believe primarily just on return of investment forces of the market without oil subsidies that we could be at 100% renewables within 10 years. Nobody really talks about that, not even the politicians that claim to be environmentalists. I think we're missing an opportunity of how quickly um, technology is scaling. And, and I would point to Scotland, who only recently announced that they planned on being 100% renewable energy based in two years. And the Scots own the rights to the North Sea oil field. Right. So to, to underscore this, what you just said, um, cut off the subsidies, we get to 100% renewable. Yeah. Wow. That's a, that's a... And that was not a pivot. I want to emphasize, Jonathan, that was not a pivot hmm. from the military issues and, and military defense. No, I get that, absolutely. That, is, that was very much connected because the people that I speak to every day um, are the special operations Marines and soldiers that know why they're still deploying at an obscene rate, and that is for oil. And I don't think, I don't think Americans realize that. And I assume that you underscored the special operations folks and so on because Camp Pendleton is in your district. I would anyway, yeah. regardless whether or not Camp Pendleton is there, but Camp Pendleton is important to the demographics of this district because there's 50,000 veteran households. Sure, those sure. aren't active duty Marines, sure. but those are veteran households that are voters. Yep. And I know from being an attorney, a trial attorney, um, in the area for going on four decades, that 90% plus of those veteran households are Marine veterans. Mm -hmm. So there's a special connection. Yeah, I can imagine that. Um, I meant that as just a factual thing, yeah. and that makes total sense that yeah. you would be connecting with those folks in the district, given your background, but also because they're there, they're voters. 
Absolutely. And there's two other things that struck me about your district. One is that, at least when I looked this up, 25% of the voters, or at least the residents of the district, are Hispanic. And I'm curious whether you're seeing any difference in their engagement or interest in the race, for example, compared to 2016 when you ran last time, be- partly because of Donald Trump's antipathy and hostility towards immigrants? I would certainly hope so. I don't know what their motivation is, but I can tell you this, that I'm the only candidate that routinely is stopped on the street and people tell me, whether they be Marine veterans, Latinos, Latinas, that, hey, Colonel, I voted for you. You should have won. I'm going to vote for you again. We'll get him this time. Mm -hmm. Now, that's anecdotal, but... I, I think that the polls are also showing something similar. This will be a unique race. Mm. Some say this will be the marquee congressional race in the country. I really don't care whether or not it's a marquee race. What's important to me is representing the people of the 49th, both veteran, Hispanic, everyone. And I think one of the things that frustrates um, me is I'm a Democrat because I've always believed Democrats were the party for the working families, Mm. the middle class of America, the workers. And I think that Democrats have stopped uh, talking to the working working people of America. I think that's why we ended up with Donald Trump. Well, part of it is he inflamed, I mean, he used racism and bigotry very, very effectively. There's no question about that. When you look at the polling data, it, racism and bigotry was powerfully used by him, but certainly in industrial Midwest states, for example, Ohio, Pennsylvania, Michigan, he effectively used his opposition to NAFTA to rally at least enough people, I think, to vote for him in those key states, which he won. And I assume you're seeing the same thing in your district as well. Um, I'm seeing the same thing in both of those, because when you said Ohio... Um, I grew up outside of Dayton, Ohio. I know the Middle West, mm-hmm. the Midwest, and um, I think no matter where you go, working families are wondering why the Democrats have deserted them. I constantly hear Democrats give their stump speeches. Um, as a matter of fact, I probably have at least a dozen or so stump speeches from other um, Democrats that I know, and. They are constantly not omitting, they're omitting income disparity. And how can you talk about the U.S. economy without talking about income disparity? I, I don't know. I don't know. And I assume that certainly you're, you're and I, I'm in, to wrap up here, I assume that's largely you're motivated by that, by the politics of it, but your own experience in your family where your mom owned a convenience store and your father worked a bread route, and he served, and I love this, he served as a union GM plant security officer. I'm a UAW member myself, so uh, I assume that comes from your own experience in list, trying to listen to the voice of the working person. Without question, my blue-collar, blue-collar upbringing made me who I am today. Um, and I, I always tell unions that I have an easy time talking to that I'm not going to forget where I come from. No matter what else happens, I, I came from a, a union family before I was even 
one of Uncle Sam's misguided children, the Marine Corps. And I think I think that both of those things have um, have served me well in this political adventure because I think I think people know that I'm not trying to be a politician. I'm trying to be what I've always been. I've, I've fought for people that were injured by the forces that are powerful, and I've spent 32 years of my life active in the reserve defending the country, and I want, I want to see change in Washington, and the change that I'm talking about is not a rhetorical change. I list the results. It's got to be for the working family, and it has to be away from unauthorized use of military force. I, I, I cannot fathom how Congress has not stood and voted by roll call on the military action that we've taken since 9-11. There's been one. And both Democrat and Republican presidents have used that AUFM for everything we've done. And I think that's one of the reasons why our democracy has been undercut because the constitution has become a matter of convenience or inconvenience followed when when it's convenient discarded when it's inconvenient it's time for our Robert Barron segment. And you know, sometimes even I'm amazed when I read and research a Robert Barron. Sometimes I'm even amazed by the greed of these Robert Barons, the chutzpah of these Robert Barons to shovel so much wealth into their pockets at the expense of the workers of the company and of society. And so today, let's consider the obscene, obscene amount of money likely to be pocketed by a man named Mark Bertolini. Now, Bertolini is the CEO of Aetna, Inc. Yes, that's the same Aetna that has bankrupted thousands of people. Lord knows how many families basically went bankrupt because they had been charged outrageous prices for Aetna health care premiums. Not to mention people who may have died because Aetna denied them coverage and denied them the kind of care they needed to save themselves. Now, you may have heard that Aetna is proposing to merge with CVS Healthcare Corporation, the company that operates pharmacies. And if the $69 billion deal does go through, Bertolini is going to walk away, are you sitting down for this one, with about a half a billion dollars a half a billion, with a B, dollars, just for himself. Now, the big money that he's going to pocket is coming from the shares he owns in the company. And that is why I often point out when we talk about robber barons and CEO greed, that that's where the big money and CEO compensation is hidden, not in their weekly or biweekly paycheck. It's in the shares they own, the stock options they get. And it's the reason 
they do everything possible to raise share prices, even if that might mean that you're going to cut workers' jobs because share prices often go up because Wall Street loves it when you cut jobs and you become more, quote-unquote, lean and mean. Now, this deal that was agreed to, the temporary deal, the proposed deal, was agreed to at a $207 a share deal price. And that would hand, at that price, $230 million just in stock that he has vested rights in. On top of that, he already holds, separately and aside, Aetna stock that rings in at another $190 million at that same share prices on the proposed deal. And because that isn't enough, he's going to get somewhere between 60 and $85 million for what is known as a change in control package. And that's the kind of deal that a CEO cuts that gives them big money in case they lose their jobs because of a merger or a takeover. Now, I know that every one of you listening to this podcast has a similar deal, right? You're going to get millions of dollars if your job all of a sudden goes away because of some takeover or merger. That's just a normal thing that every regular rank-and-file worker gets. I assume you get the sarcasm. Now, of course, this is an outrage. This is a blood-sucking company that literally has caused financial calamity to tens of thousands of people, and no doubt the deaths of other people who could not pay their outrageous premiums. And for that reason, Bertolini is the robber baron of the week. And that'll do it for this week's podcast. I want to thank my guests, Catherine Rodriguez and Doug Applegate. Our audio editor is, as usual, the awesome David Hebden. Please do subscribe to the podcast and please do become a financial subscriber, especially during this holiday time. If you're thinking about where to spend those last few dollars on a good cause, on a charity, on something that will support really good work and bring information to people all around the country and even globally make a contribution become a financial supporter a regular supporter you can do all that at workinglife.org click on the podcast tab we'll look forward to having you back next week